Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Jack, whose life-changing discovery of the father he never knew put him on a life-changing path. I was just about to leave to go to work on shift and my mum, uh, in a bit of an emotional outburst, just kind of uh, threw it at me in a, in a really stenders moment that um, he wasn't my real dad. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Ruth Huntman, and on the ticker tapes, we hear from people living with heart and circulatory conditions. On this episode, Jack talks to me about the shocking discovery of the sudden death at just 22 of the father he never met, and how it made him reassess his own life and health with unexpected and positive effects. Hi, Jack. Thank you so much for joining me on the Ticker Tapes today. So to kick off, can you just briefly tell me a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, my name's Jack. I'm f- from Ipswich. I, uh, I currently work with uh, HMP as a custodial manager. I live in Suffolk uh, with my family. And yeah, the, the, the last year I've been uh, do, doing a lot of running for um, the British Heart Foundation. Right, so we'll come on to that in a bit, how that came about. But it's a really complex and dramatic story. And it really starts with a sort of life-changing discovery when you were 21, I think it was. So can you briefly tell me sort of the run-up to that? Yes, so at the age of 21, um, I just transferred from Royal Holloway University, just outside London, transferred back to um, the University of Suffolk in Ipswich, and at the time, my mum and my dad were going through a bit of a separation and most likely was going to lead towards a divorce. So quite heightened emotions. And I know my mum was really struggling with things and, and finding it quite difficult. And yeah, essentially it led to an argument at the house. My dad ended up leaving the house and I was just about to leave to go to work on shift and my mum uh, in a bit of an emotional outburst just kind of uh threw it at me in a, in a really stenders moment that um he wasn't my real dad um yeah so uh, probably not the best time and, and she does apologize that for yeah. that now now but um i think considering the circumstances i didn't really hold it against her i think um I understood why I had to I had to know um she probably could have picked a better chance but um yeah but yeah I think I think I yeah it was it was a lot I ain't gonna lie I, I still I had to I had to kind of like lightly apologize to my mum and sort of say mum I've, I've got to go to work and uh went and had the um the worst shift of my life uh working at a pub and then eventually came back to the house and we sat down and she just kind of broke it all down for me and, and wow. went through went through the lot. And obviously you had no reason to suspect at that time that that, that was the case because you had a pretty happy, normal childhood, didn't you, with you and your brother growing up? Yes. No, I was, I was very fortunate to have, yeah, I had, a, I had an amazing upbringing. I, I was very, very lucky. My mum and my dad put us both through private education at St. Joseph's College in Ipswich. And I had I had the best time there. It was, um, some really good years, and yeah, and uh, you know, right up until the point where I was told that it, everything had been going really well. You know, off to university, studying history, everything was good. Everything was going my way. Holidays each year. Um, yeah, it was it was all really good. And then at this point, it just um, everything kind of got flipped on its head. Obviously, the divorce started to go through. I got this news broken to me, and yeah, it was it was kind of crunch time, really. That was where where it all started to change. I mean, t- tell me when when your mum sat down and sort of explained to you the background and what had actually happened. Can you can you explain how she explained it to you, essentially? Yes. So so mum sat me down and basically explained that when her and my dad had met back at school. They'd um, obviously fallen in love, ended up getting married. He'd joined the army at the time and he got stationed out in Germany. So they got married and off they went to Germany. And whilst they're out there, um, nothing seemed to be occurring with with regards to kind of mum getting pregnant, which is what mum had always wanted children. That was something that she'd always been very, very driven towards. She'd always wanted children. So that was always going to be part of the marriage and um, nothing was happening. So... 
they decided they went to the army doctors and didn't get a whole lot of kind of feedback on what the score was so when they took a trip back to the uk they went and saw the doctors over here and uh, basically found out that my dad was unable to have children he'd had a operation when he was a lot younger and he had essentially made him sterile so he was unable to have children um, mum was obviously very driven to the fact that that wasn't really where that was just going to end so she started to inquire as to what what else what other options were available to them and obviously first things first everyone just started suggesting adoption but but mum wasn't happy with that and then i believe that the uh, ivf was mentioned which at the time was quite as quite a rare thing i mean the only place in the uk you could go was london um to have this done uh, was that in the eighties then, Jack? Yes, it's a new been, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes, this would have been early eighties. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it, it would have been something very new to Mum, and uh, you know, something that she wasn't even aware of at the time. So she started doing a bit of a research herself, and she kind of set her targets on it. She was um, she's a very driven woman, my Mum, and yeah. uh, once she <laughs> once she's got her sights set on something, um, she's she's going to have it, and uh, she made a point of that that being the case. So. My dad transferred out of the army, so they left Germany, came back to the UK, and he joined up in the Metropolitan Police in London. So they moved to London, and yeah, so he, he was working as a, as a Metropolitan Police officer, and um, mum got a few little part-time jobs and started to go through the processes of the IVF treatment. She sounds like an amazingly strong woman, your mum. Yeah, she's uh, yeah, she's something else. I'm I'm very proud to be able to call her my mum. To be yeah. honest with you, she's yeah. um, she's been through a hell of a lot in her life, and uh, she's I, I get a lot of strength from her, no doubt about it. But yeah, no, so it's obviously they're going through the processes in London, and it cost an absolute fortune. I think pretty much everything that they were earning was going into the treatment, and I think mum miscarried the first time as well. So yeah, it was very difficult times, but um, eventually they got to a point and they were able to ha have my brother, so my, my older brother, who's four years older than me. Mum conceived and gave birth to my 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 older brother in nineteen eighty six. And was that 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 wasn't IVF? That was sperm donation as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. That so that was um yeah that was sperm donation. So yeah, so that that all went to plan, yeah. and um my brother was born in London. And then fast forward, I think a couple of years, and they decided to move back to Ipswich because my mum was missing home and family and being in London wasn't really ideal for the circumstances. So mum and my dad moved back to Ipswich. He transferred into um, the Suffolk Constabulary of the police and and yeah and, and uh got to sort of um i think it was 89 88 89 and my mum decided that she wanted to go again um and try for another baby and i remember her telling me that at the time they were sort of saying that she was going to have to sort of tra transport into london and back again each time she was needing sort of operations and appointments and um follow-ups and and, and appointments and all, all this injections and and mum was absolutely adamant that um, she was going to try and do as much as she could in Ipswich rather than having to do all that transport. So she spoke with her GP and basically managed to get all of the, the different injections and, and things that she would need so that she could have those in possession so that she could do that at home. So she, she learned all the different, um, wow. all the different injections that she needed. Um, she learned all about the different hormones and um, all that was required. And she started doing it to herself at home. So yeah, so she's, uh, she was a very determined lady and um, she knew what she wanted I do believe, I think she miscarried again going for me. And I think when it come down to when, when I was conceived, that was like the last chance saloon. So I was IVF and I was a frozen embryo transfer. Yeah. And um, she recently reminded me that, um, that they essentially put three embryos back. Uh, which could have meant that I would have developed into triplets, um, wow. but, uh, but but in, instead I just became one big baby. So um, so yeah. So fifth uh, of April, nineteen ninety, Jack was born, uh, weighing ten pound ten, and yeah, and 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 that was that. Wow. Um, and I think 
I think at the time, mum had only told her mum, I believe, as only my mum that was her, so my grandma was the only person who was aware of what she was going through to have the children. Incredible. Yeah, I, I believe it, it was just down to the kind of, there's a bit of a stigma around it. I, yes, I think yeah. I think a lot of people yeah. um I think a lot people today are a lot more accepting of kind of adoption. Um and IVF cl- clinics are a lot more apparent these days, so I think it's become a lot more accepted. Um but back then it was almost I don't know there was a bit of disgrace about it and I th- I think my dad being in the position that he was um a military man just joined the police, quite a male dominated kind of industry. Uh, I think it was kind of seen that he would be protected. So mum protected him and took all of the kind of the effort that would that would be needed to have the children. Um, and, and they kept it quiet. They yeah. kept it quiet. I mean, you mentioned there the kind of feeling of shame back then. We forget how far, you know, things have come. But there's, of course, yeah. there's absolutely no need to feel any shame. In fact, you know, she was incredibly brave to do what she did. Yes, yeah, no, she certainly was, and yeah. um, no, 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 obviously at the time that was just agreed that um that would be the case, and um, my dad at the time I think had told my mum that he didn't want me and my brother to ever know right um about the circumstances, and mum I think kind of half agreed at the time, but in her head she she said uh, she would always would tell us that it's just part of what our rights and and we'd need to know that at some point in our lives when she sat down and told you that that you know you you you're, the father you'd known as your father was not your father and that you'd been c- conceived by a sperm donor what was the override you know what was the thing going through your mind the one thing because it, it, it it's too much to process <laughs> yeah i mean it certainly was but i think as as she explained it more it was almost like a, I don't know, a bit of an awakening, really. Yeah. I felt um, things just started to make a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. And these these weren't even things that I was aware of. I think growing up and all through school and all, all to that point when I was 21. Um, but there'd been lots of little things that I'd noticed, I think, about mine and my dad's relationship. And he was a good dad, and I, I, I will never ever take that away from him. Yeah. Um, he was a good dad, and he did his absolute best in considering the circumstances that I'm now aware of. But when Mum told me, it just—it's uh, weird. It, that was just kind of a, a realization that just kind of all made sense. There, yeah. there was just there was little things that just kind of are, are yeah, no, that makes sense. You know, that that makes sense that he's not my dad. And so amazingly, even though you'd never met this person who was you were told you was who was your dad and he's called Jason yes you you immediately had this very strong connection I think it's fair to say and you tell me the process of of what happened next because you were determined to 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 find him if you could weren't you yes so um so yes so so mum wasn't given well she wasn't really given any information back in the day about who my donor dad was um other than the fact that um she she knew that he was a medical student um and was most likely based or living in london so that was all i had to go with but i i, I was a history student so so for me kind of that personal family history ha- has always been quite a big part of my life and, and knowing where i've come from so i think within a month of my mum telling me I felt a real desire and an urge to to do a bit of investigation and explore h- how I can actually get to the bottom of this and, and find this identity that I was kind of after. So I, uh, I spoke with mum and found out about the clinic, which was the clinic in Harley Street on uh, in London. And the clinic still is there today. So I, I contacted them and I just remember it's just speaking to them on the phone and trying to give them like a, a kind of brief understanding of where I was coming from to try and sell it to them that they really needed to help me out. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, but uh, unfortunately, due to the due to the time in which I was conceived, the laws changed around donors. So essentially, I fell just before the law changed in which 
well, as far as I was concerned, um, my donor was allowed to say completely anonymous and they weren't allowed to give me any information on him. So um, I really felt like I'd hit a brick wall, which sucked. But I think I was very fortunate on the day I was able to speak to a very lovely receptionist there who already had a bit of knowledge about uh, an organisation called DonorLink. Mm-hmm. So she gave me their details and a little bit of information basically suggesting that they were a charity organisation that was um, had linked up with King's College London DNA processing and were doing links between donors and donor-conceived children um, and obviously donor-conceived children and donor-conceived children. So trying to do those pairings and matchings. But as was told to me before I even got in contact with them, that the success rate is only based on the fact if both pairings come together and, and are on this database. So yeah. um, I was I was aware of that from word go. So I did, I got in contact with them. And uh, essentially they, uh, over a few communications, I had one of their representatives come round and did DNA swabs. Um, so uh, DNA swab my mouth. Mum also did uh, DNA swab as well because... I believe the last time that she was at the um, at the clinic going for me, she actually donated some of her eggs as well. Okay. Um, so so mum could actually have produced some other donor conceived children elsewhere as well. So there was also that little link potentially that that mum wanted to sort of look into as well. So um, so we both both went on the on the um, on the database, and I was told then again that um, look, you're, you're doing your bit. But we do have a very low success rate, so don't expect to hear from us. But you're you're doing all you can, and I was happy with that. I I was quite satisfied. I was um I was content in the fact that you know that that's that's my part done, and I can just carry on with my life. And maybe one day down the line, I might get a phone call. But I you know I didn't really think a lot more of it. I just um I was at uni, so I had a lot of uni work to to crack on with, and um and that was what I did really. And how soon after those tests did you hear back from them? Yeah, so um, <laughs> it's probably about a month later. Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll never forget the day I was I was sat having um, having my dinner, and uh, I heard Mum answer the phone, and um, I could just tell by the way she was talking on the phone that it was them. And so I sat there eagerly waiting and trying to catch any sort of glimpse of of, of what the conversation was about. Um, and then she hung the phone up and she came in and uh, she said, Jack, I've got some news for you. I said, what is it, mum? She said, uh, they found your dad. She said, uh, they found your dad, but unfortunately he's no longer worse. Um, but his parents are still alive um, and they're dying to meet you. And that, that, that was kind of how it was put to wow. me like that. So I, I had this uh, almost, you know, this overwhelming mix of emotions straight it's away. Sweet, you know, this, yeah. Yeah, this, you know, this absolute joy of the fact that yeah. they found him. Um, but then this kind of crushing, sinking feeling of he's passed away and I, I've kind of lost him before I've even met him. Um, and then there's this joy of the fact that there, there, there is some other family there and there's a, there's a link made. So yeah, so I think I think within the next day or two we got back in contact with Donor Link and they they done the kind of intermediary work between mm-hmm. us and my dad's parents who were still alive, uh, Jeanette and Terry. Um, so we started getting some details back and forth. Um, you know, I found out that they were just outside London and got their names and got a little bit more info about the family. And then we uh, exchanged email addresses. And then uh, I just remember mum calling me into the kitchen because she had her laptop open and uh, these emails had come through with pictures. And I'll never forget just looking at these pictures and, and seeing sort of almost myself kind of in these pictures and just think I was blown away, just t- totally, totally blown away by it. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, something I'll never forget that. An amazing feeling. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the pictures. I was going to mention them because we've all, I know your story quite well and we've obviously mm-hmm. spoken before. And when you sent me pictures of, of, of your dad, I was like struck by how how much you look like him it was almost yeah. like you know a, a young version of you yes yeah i know i know um and he's lovely that's, that's funny i sit here smiling because i've actually got one of his pictures um on my desk in my uh in my room how um lovely. 
yeah I, you know I've, I've always kept kept one close to when i'm at home and um yeah no it's, it's, it's a, it was a lovely feeling and, and to have those kind of images of him and and kind of get a glimpse of maybe what he was like and and, and understand what you know what he was about um uh, yeah it's the best feeling but um yeah from, from that point on we organized uh, um to meet and um yeah we, so my mum and me just uh decided we were going to travel to go meet Jeanette and Terry uh so I remember the day we drove and uh drove up this driveway got out of the car and I walked up to the door and I remember just I think I, I just kind of went to knock sort of a couple of times and literally on the first knock uh the door just flew open and this this, li <laughs> this little lady just appeared and just like wrapped her arms around me and just gave me this big hug How um and she had this sort of real thick london accent and just kind of just welcomed me into the house like i was i was just part of the family um and it was just uh yeah it's amazing and yeah. I, I, I had such a lovely day getting to meet them and um going through things and and yeah it's just it's unbelievable it really was as a charity the british harp foundation depends on the generosity of donors to continue carrying out our life-saving research thank you to all those who already give it's truly appreciated if you too would like to donate you can do so by going to bhf.org.uk slash donate and now Back to the conversation. So let's talk a bit about, so all, all that was a, a huge shock in itself and it all seemed to happen quite quickly. <laughs> but um, I, I suppose one of the burning questions was how did your father pass away and, and when and, and did he know about you? So many questions. So at what point did you find out how, how your dad had passed? So um, I think in the early stages of finding out about the link through Donor Link and um, through the early communications with my grandparents, um, that was explained that he'd um, he'd died of uh, sudden arrhythmia, which I, I was quite unaware of. I'd never heard of it before. Um, and it was, so it was a cardiac arrest he'd had. Yes, yeah, essentially, yeah. yes. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah he, he'd been uh, 22 years old. Wow. He was a, a medical student and he was just studying for his finals. Um, I believe he'd, he'd wanted to be a surgeon and he'd gone to the, the, the donor bank just for a bit of extra money whilst he was a student working at uni. He'd made his parents aware of what he, he was doing. And I think that's why, you know, that, that they, they are always in the know. They're always in the know about the, the, the possibility that someone could come forward. Yeah, I think. I think just before I go on with that, I think um, the interesting bit for me was finding out that they'd known that he could have had donor-conceived children for so long, but they only decided to give in Jason's uh, DNA to Donor Link. Um, I do believe, I think it was within about two or three weeks of timing-wise in which I did, in which I gave my my DNA in. Oh, my word. It's like it was it was meant to be. Uh, it's, it, honestly, it, yeah. it, it was, that was the scary, that was quite creepy, that bit. I thought, wow, yeah. I, that, that was so weird. She just, she um, Jeanette told me, she said, I just had this weird urge to, to, to get in contact with them. Um, and they actually got... I got my dad's DNA off of his old lab coat that he used to wear when he was a, a student oh, at uni. Wow. Oh wow! That was how they got it off the collar of his um of his lab coat. Yeah, that's so poignant. So I know, amazing. I've been known to you. Amazing. They were secretly hoping, I think, that to to find to find yeah. one of his children. Yeah, they were. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so you know he he'd just been a student um, at uni, and I, um, from what I know from the incident, my nan told me that he he'd come home. Um, she said that he looked quite tired. Mm -hmm. uh, he looked a little bit worn out, um, but she didn't really think anything of it. He was studying hard. He was working long hours, and yeah, and, and naturally just didn't make any sort of assumption that there was anything sinister at hand. But. Um, yeah, she'd uh, he he'd basically said he was going to jump in the shower. She just popped out to go get some ingredients because I think she was making a cake. And when she come back, she heard um, the shower was still on, and she called up to him but couldn't get any sort of response. So she went up and knocked on the door. The door was locked, but again, no response. So she got worried. Um, she ran next door um, and got her next door neighbour who happened to be a doctor 
he came back round and I think he ended up booting the door in and Jason was there on um, on the bathroom floor unconscious. So I do believe that he he tried to do resuscitation. Um, they called an ambulance. I think from what Jeanette told me that he, he felt at the time that there was a low pulse still there. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the paramedics arrived, uh, they got him quickly into the back of the ambulance and tried to rush him to hospital. Um, but he was actually pronounced dead en route to um, to the hospital. Um, the the only thing that they'd had prior to that, um, I think, I think it was about a month before where he'd been doing um, pull ups on his pull up bar at the house, right? Um, and he'd he'd collapsed, and um, I think my granddad had done resuscitation and brought him back round and got his breathing back. They'd gone to the doctors the following day and they'd run the basic tests and they'd they'd not sort of found any sort of inclination of anything, so that there was no real massive concern raised from it but just felt that they'd been maybe he was a little bit lightheaded he hadn't you know he you know hadn't eaten enough or, or something like that and that had been the reason he'd collapsed so but he uh, hadn't stopped breathing then he just no, collapsed no, no, no. yeah and then yeah and then fast forward the month and obviously and that that was what happened um oh, horrendously tragic i mean obviously now we that was quite a while ago were his parents and your grandparents given any idea of of why it had happened? No, no, not no. really. They um, I've I've actually got my Jeanette actually sent me all the documents and stuff from the time, and I've got the um, the pathology report um from the actual time, and uh, all that they found. So Jason had got ill, I believe. I think it was the year before um, on holiday quite he'd had like a, a viral infection mm-hmm. um and it, it really wiped him out and um they think that that may have alluded to some sort of damage potentially within his circulatory system but again there was no inclination of that from the pathology and from the report the only thing that they found was that his heart was slightly enlarged yes that, that, yeah. that was all that they found and was as, as well as taking in everything else when you heard this did was there a little bit of you that was concerned that, you know, because the circumstances of your dad's death were really sort of mysterious, that you might have inadvertently inherited something? So I think, I mean, that was made, yeah, we we spoke about that within the first meeting when I was was around Jeanette and Terry's. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think from that point I went to see my GP and explained the situation to him and uh Jeanette done her bit from sort of her side of things and we made a link with St George's Hospital in mm-hmm. London and yeah so so because of the circumstances and the fact that there wasn't a lot of known reason as to why Jason had died there was a potential risk that I had inherited this so um it was decided at the time that I would come to go um some some tests at, at St George's Hospital various tests and I'm not going to lie that was that's probably the most stressful time of my life because I was um yeah I was I was still at uni and I was having to travel backwards and forward to London gosh to St George's Hospital every every couple of weeks or so to have all manner of tests blood tests MRIs stress tests ECGs. I, I lost count of the amount of times I went back there, but I had to, I had to kind of strike up a deal with my university tutor um, to sort of say, look, as long as I uh, I meet all your targets and you send me everything that I need to complete, I said, I was like, please don't kick me off the course. I said because I'm I'm most likely going to miss a few uh, lectures and and a few um, few meetings and such. Um, and fortunately, that they managed to agree to the deal and. I just, I'll never forget, sort of sat on uh, London tube trains uh, with my laptop, typing up assignments and stuff, whilst I'm travelling to go have these tests done at St George's Hospital. Um, And yeah, um, eventually it got to a point, uh, it's probably probably like that for near on a year, I Mm -hmm. think, travelling backwards and forward. And yeah, eventually got to a point where they decided they were going to refer me just for kind of yearly checkups. Mm -hmm. So... um, uh, and essentially, you fast forward to now, so nearly ten years of this. Well, mm-hmm. it, it is just ten years this year. Um, ten years of of having um, these regular appointments at St George's. I'm now under um, Professor Bear, who's yeah, there Professor now. Professor Elijah Bear, he's brilliant. Yeah, Elijah Bear. Yeah, we work a lot with him. And um, 
and you there was nothing conclusive found you you don't have a heart condition as far no, as you know so, at the moment, no abnormality so yeah so in my uh, my very limited uh, knowledge of um of kind of um of hospital uh, terminology and and <laughs> uh, kind of what's been going on with me um all they found with me is that um i have a slightly enlarged heart mm-hmm. um but they they have told me the feedback i've had is that due to the amount of exercise that i do and the amount of training i do that's quite common in um athletes so athletes do naturally have have quite a bit of a larger heart than them kind of the regular um people and they found on my ecg readout one of my one of my little blips uh is slightly lower than kind of what a average blip would be which again that's my terminology i'm sure that it means a lot more to, to some other yeah, people but yeah. that was kind of how it was explained to me and that that was kind of how i i saw it so from my point of view um and from what they've told me there's nothing to suggest that, that i have inherited anything but once again because they don't fully understand why it happened to my dad uh, they can't officially kind of just say you're absolutely fine jack don't worry about it that's why i kind of have these yearly checkup checkups yeah. but but the the crucial thing is that you're on the radar of professor bear and yes. that you're being monitored because sadly you know people just drop dead Mm-hmm. Um, without you know and it's only subsequently that it's discovered that they have a a, a heart condition that possibly could have been treated yes so yeah. uh, so in that respect your your father gave you a quite a gift didn't he he certainly did yeah yeah he certainly did yeah and, and what's ha- uh, sort of moving forward jack do you try and push that to the back of your mind and not let it sort of overwhelm you do you you know and take comfort from the fact that at least you're being monitored so i, I think i think at the time i really struggled um mm. i didn't really uh, i didn't open up to my mum really for quite a long time about this but i, I think at the time i kind of I, I just tried to take ownership of it i was very much aware of what my mum was going through with the divorce um and having to move house and and all this you know stressful circumstances that she was dealing with i just tried to own what was going on with me and kind of take full responsibility of it myself um but in doing so um i, I very much struggled with my mental health with it I bet, um yeah and it was the first time in my life where like I said before, I mean, I had 20 odd years, very kind of protected, sheltered, excellent upbringing, happy life. Everything had been going well. And now at this point, everything had kind of been flipped on its head. And um, yeah, I, I certainly struggled. And I, I, I think I had to kind of come to grips with the fact that I think naturally I thought, well, I'll, I'll you know, you, your mind drifts towards that negative thoughts of, well, I've probably inherited something and I yeah. could just drop down dead at any moment. So I had to kind of get to grips with my own sort of mortality and understand the fact that, you know, if if that is going to be the case, there's not a lot I can do about it. There was not a lot my dad could have done about it because he was unaware, whereas I'm aware of a potential inherited condition uh, and I'm doing everything that I can to try and get to the bottom of it. And I'm seeing the right people who can help me with that. So I think in that I took a little bit of... um, I don't know, a little bit of comfort, but yeah, it, it was tough. Um, and I would say it was, yeah, that was a real rough couple of years. Um, and it, it took a long time for me to be able to open up to people about it and talk about it and um, kind of take acknowledgement of the fact that I was I was struggling. Um, and I think it's probably a year later um, when I actually engaged with um, an actual therapist and, and just started talking about things and, and trying to get to the kind of root cause of where my mind was at and how I understood things um and yeah I just it was weird I kind of I got to a point where um I I don't know I kind of got quite powerful in my own beliefs of it and Mm. um I did I I kind of I don't know I I just I I didn't fear the the circumstances I I didn't I didn't I wasn't worried about it I, I took ownership of it I'd done everything that I could to to you know to find out whether I had anything and if it was going to happen, then it's going to happen. But I, I, I own it. I own it, and I, I had power in that, I suppose. And and yeah, and I, I think it made, uh, I, you know, I say to a lot of people now, it's it's kind of the most defining point in my life because um, everything changed after that. 
everything changed. That brings me brilliantly on to, you know, how it changed, which is you decided to get involved with the British Heart Foundation. And despite, I mean, I can't imagine one of the things you've described going through would, would kind of be more than enough for what a person to cope with. But, yeah. you know, the, the, I can't imagine the, um, the range of emotions you've been through. But tell me how you decided that you wanted to support the British Heart Foundation and, and raise money in your dad's memory as, as his legacy. Yeah, so I, I think um, the, the idea for running the London Marathon had been, that's probably the, the number one thing I've always wanted to do in my life from probably the age of 10. I just remember being a, um, a young lad sat at home watching the TV and seeing all these people running the London Marathon and just being in absolute awe of it and just thinking it was the most amazing thing in the world um, and just always had my mind set on the fact that I will run that one day. One day I will be running on those streets and I'll be one of those people. Hmm. And I think once I'd had this time, you know, I'd had I'd been at London, I'd been going, going all these tests and I'd been made aware of the situation with my dad I'd formed this amazing relationship with my grandparents and and further family and uh, it put me into a much better place in my life and that was I think it was a what was I 22 23 um, was my first attempt at trying to enter London and uh, I had my mind set on wanting to run in in memory of my dad and running for the British Heart Foundation through everything that I've been through um, and just to try and just try and do him do him some justice um and some and you know and, and to try and promote you know something amazing that had happened from something so tragic all those years ago so yeah so the, the, yeah i think i was 23 i think was my first attempt uh but didn't get in and then 24 25 26 oh, 20 yeah. and it just kept going on and on and i thought i thought one year one year i'm gonna get in i i think it was around about when i was i think it was 27 28 and uh a friend of mine who's not even a runner or an athlete or um so i'm i'm naturally i've, I've always been into sport um from a very young age my mum was very much into sports and her brothers were into sport and, and boxing and, and rugby. And um, so so from a young age, all through school, I was always in sport. I was always playing sport, always very fit, athletic, liked to train, look after myself. And so fast forward to sort of 27, 28, and I had a friend of mine who is not athletic in the slides, who's literally the polar opposite, <laughs> the polar opposite of what I am. Never left um, the armchair. No, honestly, no, yeah, no <laughs> athletic bone in their body. And they just, on a whim, just thought, ah, I'll, oh, yeah, I'll stick mine in. I'll, I'll give it a go. And they bloody got in first time. Oh. And I, I was just livid. I just, I was so angry. I thought, I'm trying all these years trying to get in. Um, and then they just get in first time. But I, I didn't let it deter me. I just thought, no, I'll keep going. I'll keep going. One day, that'll be my chance. And then, yeah, and then so fast forward to last year, and I was going through the motions of what I'd become very used to of, of trying to apply for London. And uh, uh, I think, yeah, I just got, so it was the start of this year. I think it was January, February time, and I was informed of being unsuccessful in the ballot and uh, hadn't got a place. So in my usual form, I thought, right, you know, annoyed, pissed off, <laughs> however you want to put it. Uh, I logged on and I started looking for other events or other races to do. And um, at the time, I'd, uh, I'd just been listening to some podcasts and watching some YouTube videos of a gentleman called David Goggins, mm -hmm. who is um, an ultramarathon runner from uh, the United States former um, marine and special forces um, and he is just this absolute force of positivity and mental toughness and just a fantastic person to sort of try and relate to or try and take bits from to improve your own lives and he started speaking about an event which he launched I believe only the year before which is his own charity event and he it's launched on kind of a global stage in which anyone can do it anywhere in the world and it's called the four by four by 48 and um essentially you'd run four miles every four hours over 48 hours wow. which uh yeah which you know which equates to a lot of miles um but it's um it's kind of that endurance aspect to it and it's a challenge so i got quite enamored with it and thought yep 
I, I like the sound of that. That's a good thing. That's something not a lot of people know about because it's only in its second year. But something quite interesting, a little bit different. And I, in my head, I thought that's the sort of thing I could probably try and raise a little bit of money for because I thought that's, a, that's something that might capture people's interest. So I decided to start my GoFundMe page. Um, and at this point, I think I was only... It's only a month out or so, or a little bit, little bit more than that. Um, so I thought I'll start my GoFundMe and I'll set it at like three hundred and fifty quid or something like that. And I just used it as a as a real kind of positive push. There was a lot of pressure on me at work, and I just had a whole mix of things. I think I called it like the quadruple whammy at the time, where wow. I just I'd been hit by like four things right at the end of twenty twenty. And it just put me way back into that kind of mental slump that I'd been similar to what I'd been back when I was sort of 21, 22. So I had to seek out a little bit of guidance and some help from some colleagues at work. And I, I kind of latched onto this charity fundraiser as kind of a, an outlet almost to, to try and almost to try and get myself back to normal, really not only for a good thing in the sense that I was raising money for charity, but I think for a personal standpoint, it was more about trying to improve my mental health and, and get me focused and back on track. Cause I had, um, yeah, it's certainly thrown a curveball in the mix because I'd, I'd had such a good year in 2020, but yeah, so it, it led to the event and, um, I just noticed almost immediately. So from the GoFundMe page, I put, only really put a small little part of my story on uh, on the GoFundMe page, and that that was kind of as a bit of a tester, really. I wanted to see if I got much interest or how much take up I got on it just from a small part of the the story, and it it really took off. I I was within a week or two, I was inundated with messages, and I surpassed my three hundred fifty pound mark. I think within a week or something, it it just really took off. And I just knew, I, I knew there was something to it, but um, I focused on the event and uh, I was fortunate enough to have a whole bunch of friends come and run with me throughout the whole uh, the whole, the whole two days that I did it um, and was successful when I completed it. Um, and I think by the end of the challenge, I think I was sat at about £1,500 wow. or something like that. Thank um, you. That's amazing. It, yeah, and that, that was through literally like a month, a month of raising money. I thought, wow, okay, this is yeah, this is something now. I said, I've I've definitely I've caught on to something here. I know I have, and I, I so I, I finished the event, and um, I remember putting a few posts up on my Instagram, and yeah, it, it just again this money just kept rolling in, and I thought, well, there's something, something's here. Something's I've I've got something here. Um, so I planned from that point and I, I plotted out the rest of the year and um, signed up to a whole bunch of other events. And this was even even prior to sort of getting into London and, and where, where where this story is going to. So I had a year planned out and I thought, you know what, I'll just keep the GoFundMe up and I'll just promote every event that I do throughout the year. And I'll just keep the money coming in and see where I can get to. And yeah, I think within another week, I was up to two thousand pounds, and I just I was I remember I remember being on the phone to my grandma Jeanette, and uh, she she said to me she said she went you want to be on the phone to the British Heart Foundation you want to be telling them what you're doing you want to be letting them know you'll get a place in London I went Jeanette I went I, I you know I I don't want to be pushy I don't want to be you know trying to get in there you know through the back door she went you've got to do it I'm gonna ring them I'm gonna ring them. <laughs> And I was like, I was like, okay, all right, Jeanette, let, let let me know how you get on. And I think I think like a day later, she called me and went, I've been on the phone to the British Heart Foundation. Here's a number. You need to call it. I was like, okay, Jeanette, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll call it. And um, yeah, I, I remember calling and um, I spoke to a couple of people and sort of told them what I'd done. I'd sort of said that I, you know, I'd always wanted to do London and I'd only done this event because I hadn't got into London again. And that was kind of left like that. And then I just remember, I think it was a few days after that, I came out of work and I think I'd finished on a five o'clock that day on my shift. And um, I'd gone to my car, I'd switched my phone on and um, I had this email come through 
and uh, <laughs> I just I remember just leaping for joy in the car park, and uh, that basically confirmed that the that the British Heart Foundation was offering me a spot in the London Marathon, and um, I was literally I was jumping for joy in the car park. My, my one of my best friends come uh, running over to me, and he just gave me a big hug and looked, like started jumping around with me, and he was like, "What are we celebrating?" And I just <laughs> I went, "I've got in, I've got in," and he's going, "In what? In what?" And I was just, "I've got in London, London," and then we were just cheering at us yeah it was amazing really really just the best day when i got that news and um that really kind of set my sights on a, on a on a great target to work towards and and build through all these other events that i'd booked in um towards that point um, and, and you've got your your amazing grandmother to to, to thank she's she's yes. like your agent Jack. Yeah, she is yeah <laughs> she is my agent yeah no definitely um very briefly what when you actually ran the marathon this year was it everything you expected and hoped unbelievable yeah, yeah I, I just um yeah that the atmosphere and the just everything there that was there's no way of describing it um You've got so much support out there. And I think it was quite special in itself this year because they hadn't been able to do it properly for two years due to COVID. So you had, I felt like the whole of London was out just to support all these people running. And there were certain points on the course where you just hit like a wall of noise and everyone cheering, everyone being so positive. And it's just such an amazing day. I I got such a buzz out of it. And, um, yeah, I mem- I just remember rounding the corner on that famous part of uh, you know the f- the final stretch yeah. on the mail, and um, I was just oh so overjoyed. I was just yeah, it was the best feeling ever crossing that line and getting the medal and 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 doing it all in memory of my dad. That was um, that was really quite special. I loved it. Yeah, very emotional. I mean, were your grandparents and your mum there, or were they no, watching no, on? To- no, so they they stuck to the guidance, and that the guidance <laughs> had been for um, family not to attend. Yes. But my my grandma had been on the phone to me, and she was like, "Well, I want to be there at the finish line." I said, <laughs> "I said, Nan, I said, I don't think you're going to be able to do it." She went, "No, I'm gonna I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna see what I can do." I went. And in my head, I was like, "Well, knowing her, she'll probably be able to get in with the royals or something and get a, get one of the one of the boxes at the palace." I was like, that, "Honestly, that wouldn't surprise me. I've got a box at the palace. I'll see you at the finish line." I'd be like, "Okay, okay, Nan, no problem. I wouldn't even bat an eyelid. I think, yeah, that's probably about right." Well, she yeah. she she might get a chance next year because you're a glutton for punishment. You've applied for a a, a London marathon place. With the British Heart Foundation for <laughs> I, next year, Jack. I, I certainly have. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't. I couldn't resist. Um, and I, I think the uh, doing it that first time—that's that's one thing I will never forget. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm at a point where I think I think physically, I think from a from a sporting point of view, my my resilience and my endurance. Although I'm carrying a little bit of extra weight because I, I haven't done much exercise the last month or so, but my <laughs> my my endurance and my resilience is probably the highest it's ever been. And um, I literally the following week after London, I actually went and completed the Manchester Marathon as well. Wow! Um, and then only a couple of weeks after that, I I completed um a, a Spartan trifecta, so the Spartan um obstacle course races. Um, and I'd done all three of their races over a weekend, um, which equated to about 25 miles of like hills and mud and obstacles. So um, I, I, I know physically I'm, I'm at a good point where I can actually complete these things. So yeah, um, yeah. At, at the age I'm at of 31, I think uh, I, I want to try and do as much as I can uh, before my body decides to pack in. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, t- take um, it easy, Jack. Hold back a little bit in case you get in for the marathon next year. Of course. Yes, of course. <laughs> Um, what, how much money have you raised to date? Uh, so I do believe, let me just log on. I, so I, I read that I'd received a couple of donations again like over the last couple of days. And that's the other thing I, I just want to say, like this donation stuff hasn't stopped I literally, um, I've, I've managed, uh, so I got, I got into the local papers here in Ipswich and obviously through um, the British Heart Foundation, I was able to get into Metro as well. But the the donations just don't stop coming in. Um, I think the more through word of mouth that, that it gets out there, the more donations I keep receiving. So I'm now currently stood at £4,325. Wow. 
Um, and like I say, I received two more donations over the last couple of days. So um, it just keeps going, uh, Ruth. I don't, I don't know where the kind of the ending point is for this, but um, at this point in time, it just, it just kind of keeps going. And it must be a wonderful boost to know that you know a lot of these donations have come from strangers merely yes. because they've been touched yeah. by your dad's story. Yeah, um, and that that has been that has been the real effect that I've, that I've had from it. So um, in my role in my job at the moment, I'm dealing with a lot of new staff that are coming into the prison and and starting to work there and um they're finding out through word of mouth and reading my stories so i'm i'm yes the, the word keeps spreading and, and people keep hearing about it and i think everyone has the same kind of reaction to it it's um it's an incredibly tragic story that's that's had this amazing um kind of you know rejuvenation of over the last few years and in, in which I've, I've been found and um and and what i've done over the past year in, in trying to get um yeah, you know, get get the word out there and um, get the story out yeah. there. Um, um, Jack, can I can I just ask you, you know, as a final question, what do you think your dad would have made of, of what you're doing? And that's probably quite a hard thing to 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 think about. Have yeah. you ever thought of that? Yeah, I have. I um, I I don't know. I'd, I'd like to think he'd be proud. Oh, I, yeah. I think I think he would. Um, and yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I just that's hard really because I think deep down, you know, as as much as I've learned through his friends and his family about what he was like, I, I'm just I I always will be a bit gutted that I'll never be able to meet him. Yeah, and I think for me, the only way I can kind of uh, you know try and appease that is just to try and keep his memory alive and and to do this event in his his memory and and. Um, you know that that's my way of trying to do do him some justice and and um yeah make him proud I suppose I, I think that's probably where I am well I've, I've no doubt you're certainly doing that and it's a wonderful legacy as well yeah thank you yeah. um Jack thank you so much for being so honest um no sharing problem. your story with me um and I wish you all the best and hopefully see you at the finish line next year absolutely yeah absolutely thank you if you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Mondays to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website bhf.org.uk. And if you've got your own heart story or have any thoughts on this episode, get in touch with us by emailing theTickerTapes at bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes.